I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Tom McKinnon. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2011. It's the science show, the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, we look at the technology aspect of Boulder's possible conversion to a municipal utility. Should Boulder break free from Excel? Municipalizing Boulder, Muni B, Colorado's 30th, Muni Electric. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. All non-African humans alive today have some Neanderthal, according to a recent study published in the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution. An international team of scientists pored over the contents of over 6,000 X chromosomes from all inhabited continents. They compared this data with a sequence of the Neanderthal genome derived from remnants last year. Neanderthal came out of Africa to settle in southern Europe and western Russia hundreds of thousands of years ago. Most humans today are descendants of a population of Homo sapiens that came out of Africa 50 to 80,000 years ago, first to the Middle East and then into Europe. About 9% of the Neanderthal X chromosome sequence can be found in this dominant population group today. The exceptions are those whose ancestors are only from Africa and specifically not West Africa. The new theory is that Neanderthal and those human African emigrants interbred before the distinct Neanderthal population disappeared 30,000 years ago. This theory is further supported in a separate study published in the most recent issue of the journal Nature. Interbreeding to produce fertile offspring means that Neanderthal were not a distinct species, but merely a different subspecies. Thus, Neanderthal were not so much extinguished as a species, but rather were assimilated, and so live on, to some degree, in the great majority of us. Astronomers from Canada and Hawaii have confirmed the existence of a Trojan asteroid in Earth's orbit. For now, it's known as 2010 TK7. A Trojan asteroid is one that shares the same orbit as a planet, but remains 60 degrees ahead or behind the planet, dancing about a point of equilibrium between that planet's gravity and the sun's gravity, known as the Lagrange point. Trojan asteroids have already been found co-orbiting with Jupiter, Mars, and Neptune. This recently discovered companion to Earth's orbit, uh, to Earth, orbits about uh, 60 degrees ahead of the Earth, about the Earth's L4 Lagrange point. It does not stay exactly 60 degrees ahead, but dances about in what's known as a libration. This libration has a 395-year cycle and an annual epicycle on top of that. One extreme finds the Trojan asteroid speeding ahead almost to the next Lagrange point on the far side of the Sun. At the other extreme, it almost allows the Earth to catch up. It also swings out of the plane of the Earth's orbit by slightly over 20 degrees. Earth's newfound dance par partner, only 300 meters across, was found using the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE, launched by NASA in 2009. The NASA mission recently posted an animated visualization of this libration dance. We put a link to it up on the How on Earth website, howonearthradio.org. 
But before you go out and pay big bucks to secure the movie rights for this catastrophic collision with Earth, scientists Martin Connors, Paul Wiegert, and Kristen V.A. have done some calculations. They're confident that the 2010 TK7 will continue to happily liberate about L4 for at least another 7,000 years. And on this day, 72 years ago, Albert Einstein and Leo Szilard wrote a letter to Franklin D. Roosevelt urging him to begin the Manhattan Project to develop a nuclear weapon. Hello, listeners. I'm How on Earth's Ted Burnham. It recently came to our attention that our show email address, science at kgnu.org, was not reliably forwarding messages for the last month or so. We know of at least a few people who tried to contact us via that address and whose messages were swallowed up by the Internet. To them, and to the ones we don't know about yet, we apologize for the trouble you experienced. The problem has been fixed, but unfortunately we cannot recover messages that failed to go through. So, if you emailed us after June 13th, please resend your message ASAP, especially if it was a submission to our theme song contest. We had no idea we were missing out on your amazing music, and we very much want you to be considered in the contest. Please resubmit by this Friday, August 5th, so that judging can continue at an appropriate pace. Again, to all our listeners, we're sorry for any anxiety or inconvenience we've caused. Thanks for bearing with us, and as always, thanks for listening. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. As part of KGNU's ongoing coverage of Boulder's energy decision, today we'll be talking about the technical side of the municipalization question. How will it work? Where will we get the power? Of course, there are many political aspects to this topic as well, but we'll leave those to other KGNU's broad, KGNU broadcasts. With us in the studio to help with these questions is Ken Regelson. Ken is a sustainable energy consultant and a member of the steering committee and the technical modeling committee of RenewablesYes.org. Ken holds a master's degree in electrical engineering. And he tells us he's available to speak to on, on Boulder's clean energy future at your neighborhood group, business group, or at your next dinner party. Ken, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you. So, Ken, let's start by giving us a brief rundown of uh, what Boulder's uh, voters will likely to be asked to uh, decide on uh, this coming November. We expect two issues on the ballot in November. The first issue is the permission to municipalize. That means that the city takes over but doesn't necessarily actually run the electrical system. That is a charter set of charter changes and permission to do bonding. The second piece is to fund the preliminary study that needs to be done and the work that needs to be done to actually set what the costs are to acquire the distribution system. So there'll be two issues. One will be municipalized and the other will be preliminary funding for municipalization. So, Ken, now the name of your group is at RenewablesYes.org, so clearly renewable energy is your passion. Um, just give us uh, briefly your, your vision of uh, where you see Boulder going uh, if this passes and, um, and things move forward. So what we want to see is a clear path to 100% renewables while minimizing carbon along the way. And there are a bunch of musts that must come with that. Reliability must be at least as good as it is now, if not better. We need competitive and comparable and stabilized electric bills. So we want to see a path to where bills aren't constantly going up as they are now, but we can see a path towards them bending down and becoming much more stable over time. 
We want nimble and fiscally conservative local control. And whatever solution we adopt, this can't be just a Boulder-only solution. This has to be growable beyond Boulder. Carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases, they don't stop at the city limits. We have to have something that shows the way for any other place that is in the similar circumstance that we are. If it's Denver, if it's the entire state of Colorado, our solutions must be able to grow beyond Boulder. Okay, so Ken, uh, before the interview, you mentioned something about a a four-step process to get there. Uh, You you want to um, elaborate that a little bit? So if you think about 100% renewables, well, that's much too big a step to take all by itself. You've got to break it down. So let's break it into four steps. The steps are up to 25% renewables, up to 50% renewables, up to 75% renewables, and up to 100% renewables. And each of those steps needs different kinds of technology to support it, and the technology, some of it, will build so that we can use technology in, say, the second step into the fourth step. That's what we want to find, is things that carry us through all the way to the end. So let's talk about each step. And when we talk about renewables, we're talking about wind and solar, they're variable generation. The wind doesn't blow all the time, the sun doesn't shine all the time, and we can't really control exactly when it happens. Oh yes, we know that wind blows best at night, and that's complementary to solar where the sun generally glows best during the day. But it's not controllable, so we need controllable generation to back up the renewables. So let's talk about that first step. So if it's renewables up to 25%, for controllable generation, the controllable generation, the things that have on and off switches, there are two big kinds. And right now what we have is a mix of those. From Excel, we have about 70% baseload coal. These are gigantic power plants that don't turn down very well. They're kind of like a car that's stuck in fourth gear. Okay, You can't go below a certain speed on them. And then we have power plants that are nimble, that carry through the rest of the load, and they can change very quickly. And typically, these are generated with natural gas. Okay, so we're still at the 25% step. For solar and wind, we can have either just wind or just solar or a mix of the two. Any of those work just fine. That's the first step. Now let's move to the second step, 50%, up to 50%. At the point where you cross somewhere around 25 or 30% renewables, you just can't have any more of the power plants that just turn on and off, like baseload coal. It just doesn't work. And that's because they're gigantic machines. It just don't, the technology, I'd happily go into this at any depth, but, but just take my word for it for now. You just can't have them in the mix. So you can only have nimble peaking power plants, and generally the fuel for those is natural gas. And then you add more solar and wind above the 25% step, so now we're talking 50%. But it has to be a mix of wind and solar. You can't have just wind, and you can't have just solar. Just doesn't keep the lights on. Now let's step up to 75%. Nimble peaking power plants again, more solar and wind, but now we need short-term energy storage from seconds to days. This could be pumped hydro or it could be batteries. This technology exists, but it's fairly expensive. What we think and strongly believe with lots of reasons is that the price point on storage, energy storage, utility scale, is going to drop very, very quickly in the next few years and that that technology will not just exist, but it'll become cost-effective in the next few years. That's 75%. Now, to get to 100%, we have to change two things. One is our controllable generation. It's no longer based on natural gas. 
it might be based on something else, like it might be ethanol. We don't know. But it has to be not just nimble in terms of how quickly it can go up and down to match the sun and wind, but it also has to be nimble with regard to what fuel it can take. Even more solar and wind, and yes, we need short-term energy storage, but now we need the final technology and the final piece of this, long-term energy storage, weeks to years of energy storage. Because there are times where weeks at a time where there is no sun, there is no wind or very little, and we still need to keep the lights on, we still need to keep our electric vehicles charged. That We can picture that technology, but we don't know what it is. It doesn't exist, as near as I can tell. I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm hoping somebody's working on this, or lots of people are working on this. But just by talking about it, people begin thinking about it. It might be that what this is is take electricity and carbon, maybe from trash or from compost, and water and make ethanol, store the ethanol, and then you burn the ethanol in our controllable generation. That gets you to 100%. There are many ways in which uh, the technology generation or the energy generation technology we have today uh, is externalized. The consumers don't pay for it. The power company doesn't pay for it. Simply future generations pay for it with the degraded environment. The most obvious manifestation of that, I believe the one that concerns most people nowadays, is the carbon footprint. Now, the carbon footprint of something like burning coal is quite obvious to see if you just look at the smokestacks above Valmont Station. But there are many ways in which carbon is consumed to make power. Can you talk about the evolution of the carbon footprint through these cycles? Sure. So we've got four steps. Let's talk about what the carbon reduction is for each step. If you look at the first step, where you still have baseload coal in the mix, you can't get very much of a big of a reduction from that. So if you do 25% renewables, you might get to 25% carbon reduction, and you might not, because the coal that has to be burned, there are times when coal is what's called a must-take resource. So the times you burn coal and, in fact, do what's called curtail the wind. This actually started happening at 10% renewables with Excel, even less than that, less than 10% renewables, where they had to curtail the wind. What does that mean? It means turning off wind turbines when the wind is blowing so you can burn coal. And the more renewables that you have, the more that that occurs, and it occurs on an exponential basis on that. Okay, so steps two, 50%. We're talking about that because you're switching from coal as doing much of the backup to natural gas, that gets you a cut in half of the renewables just by itself, just from burning coal to burning mostly coal to burning mostly natural gas, cut your greenhouse gases in half. So 50% renewables looks like about a 70 to 80% reduction in greenhouse gases, just to 50% renewables because of the switch to natural gas. 75%, now you're splitting the difference. It's smaller and smaller amounts of carbon left that you can cut but 75% renewables, you're looking about at 85% reduction. Of course, 100% renewables, you'd be looking at no carbon at all. And by the way, we think that we can do this with electric vehicles as well. And that electric vehicles are a key part of the puzzle and will move very quickly on that. So, Ken, uh, where will we get the renewable energy? Will we need to erect uh, wind farms within the city limits? Um, as, as much as the wind blows in Boulder hard a few days of the year. Most of the time, the wind doesn't blow in Boulder. Uh, we have a test center just outside of Boulder, up on the Mesa, where Rocky Flats used to be. Um, that's a good place to test wind turbines, but they don't generate a heck of a lot of electricity from that. The wind turbines are going to have to be out east, and there's lots and lots and lots of resources out there. Excel went out for 200 megawatts of wind bids in Colorado about four months ago, and they got, I believe it was 10,000 megawatts 
of response. These are wrench-ready, transmission-ready projects that people want to do. They're financed. They know what they're doing. Uh, they have the permits. They have the wind. There is no lack of wind resource in Colorado. Solar, that's going to come from our rooftops. We've done an initial study that indicates that we probably have more good rooftop space for solar in the city limits than what we probably want on the electrical system, certainly into that 50% step. 75 and 100, that becomes more interesting, and that's going to require more study. So this is a science show, and we're going to have to ask you to try to deliver some hard numbers. And I know that you said one of the issues the people may vote on is the study, but still, uh, I assume that your, your organization has done some preliminary studies. So I'll ask you first, uh, remind listeners that use Excel Energy what they're paying now per kilowatt hour. Talk about the total capacity, the average capacity of power generation after municipalization and the peak uh, power generation capacity. How many megawatts do you foresee Boulder generating? Okay, so you asked for numbers, and as soon as you start getting into numbers, it gets interesting, and particularly if you can't just write them down and show everybody, but I'll do my best here. Um, so residentially, we pay about 10.5 cents a kilowatt, or maybe it's 10.3, somewhere in there. Uh, our rates have gone up 7% in the last six months, uh, and that's overall rates. But not surprisingly, because commercial and industrial use a lot more electricity, they get a break. So when we talk about power, we typically talk about the blended cost per kilowatt hour of electricity across the different things. So residentials pay 10.3. The blended cost across the city is about 8.3. Um, in terms of getting into some of the facts and figures of the situation. Boulder represents about 1.3 billion, with a B, kilowatt hours per year. That's the total usage within the city, university, the labs, uh, industry, residences, the whole shoot and match. Uh, and uh, a peak of about 250 megawatts of capacity. Peak tends to occur at about 5 to 6 p.m. on hot summer days from air conditioning. Um, our minimum is at the on the course of a year is about a little more than 100 megawatts that's important because that's where you typically set your base load in traditional planning in the future with renewables you can't have base load at all so ken uh, boulder has a no experience running an electrical utility is, is it feasible thing to think that we could uh, just flip the switch and uh, manage one right from the get-go well so this question is are there other places other cities that do this and the answer is yeah um, if Boulder municipalizes, we will be number 30 in Colorado, and I don't know, number 1,500 or something like that in the United States. Um, the uh, um, answer is absolutely we can run the system. Um, like anything else, you hire experienced talent. Uh, and so just to give you an idea of some of the munis that are out there in Colorado, Lyons, Tiny Lyons is a muni, uh, Fort Collins is a muni, Longmont is a muni, Colorado Springs is a muni, Aspen is a muni. Uh, I could go on and on uh, in terms of the cities that do that, uh, that carry through with municipalization and run that. The additional thing is that we actually think that uh, there are a number of companies. We think that if we were to go to bid for running the distribution system, we'd see on the order of somewhere between three and five qualified companies responding uh, to that bid for running distribution system. Uh, one of them is called ENCO USA. Um, they work with other munis. Uh, and have started up where the muni is switched over from being run, the electricity run by the investor-owned utility, to being a muni. Uh, and uh, they look like a pretty good bet. Um, they come in with huge amounts of experience in the transition and all the other pieces. I think we'd be kind of crazy if we didn't take advantage of that. 
Um, the second piece is uh, the generation. Um, when Marin Clean Energy Authority went to bid for their generation, uh, nobody knew how many responses they would get. They got a dozen qualified responses. Um, we think we'll get more because we're bolder and the entire world is watching what we're doing. Um, there's a lot of very interesting companies that have come through town recently talking to city council and city management. Getting all the way to 100% renewable energy seems like quite a long-range vision, and I want to stress the word vision. In order to get there, to what degree could you look at other cities, perhaps in other countries? I understand countries in Europe, such as Germany, use a lot higher degree of renewable energy today. To what degree were you able to look at how other cities do it, and to what degree did you have to use mathematical and computer models? So there are other places that we can look to that have high penetration of renewables, but they tend to have lots and lots of hydro. So they start with a big leg up. Hydro is interesting because it's capable, most hydro facilities, dams, are capable of running either as baseload or as peaking. So they can play all of the different pieces. What we have not seen is, as far as we know, any place that has switched from mostly coal Right now we're about 65-70% baseload coal for Colorado's generation from Excel to mostly renewables. That has not been something that we have seen and we don't know of any models for that. For, to look at this, what we did was extensive modeling and let me tell you who we is first. There were two separate groups. The first was the um, city of Boulder went and hired a number of consultants and expert advisors to help them. The expert advisors were people that had run municipal electric facilities. The second was a group of volunteers. So we went and actually went and did modeling. Uh, and we did extensive modeling. And this is all available on the website on renewablesyes.org. Ken, we have about 60 seconds left. Uh, is there anything we left out or any points you'd like to emphasize uh, in closing? Well, so here's the deal. is technically and financially, this is feasible. We can do this. This is... A, it's not rocket science. It does require care and thought, and that's what the preliminary funding is for, is so that we can do the analysis and we can do the legal challenge that it's going to take to do this. This is an incredible opportunity. I am wildly excited, and you just can't hardly make me shut up about the topic uh, on this, and I, I'd just love to talk about it. And anybody that's interested, you can contact us at info at renewables. Yes, that's renewables, plural, yes.org. All right, that was uh, Ken Ragelson, uh, as he said, as the group, group of renewablesyes.org. You can learn more. There will be a city council meeting uh, largely devoted to that. Uh, it's tonight at 5 p.m., meeting at the Boulder Municipal Building on the corner of Broadway and Canyon. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced by Tom McKinnon and engineered by Ten Burnham. The executive producer is Susan Moran. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Yababa. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Tom McKinnon. <laughs>